You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson with NRM Streamcast and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff and having fun along the way. You can send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorahgmail.com and of course I will answer as many as I can. And the we're getting ready, Thanksgiving is coming up next week. People need to show a lot of thanks, a lot of appreciation, at least in America we have one day a year. It's one of these things I've been practicing because as if you've been paying attention, my son got married a week and a half ago. My daughter, Yitz Hashem, is getting married next week. And one of the important things that we do a lot, first of all, I do it in my home all the time, um, is we give thanks. We recognize, we tell God, we thank you for the good you've showered upon us. We appreciate it. We recognize it. And I actually get to do it a bunch of times because just like this show, um, I do like to talk, in case you noticed, and I speak. I like to speak by as many meals as possible, even though for my son, that's the way it worked out, right? There's, there's the wedding, and then there's the next six days where any meal made in honor of the chassan and kala, the bride and groom, um, there's special blessings that are made, people like to speak, lots of people like to give their advice, so interesting. I, I got an email about some book, The Ten Biggest Mistakes That Couples Make, and the, the title is great. I was almost thinking, oh, I should buy it. That sounds like a great book. But the title is fantastic. But what makes me think this guy knows what the biggest mistakes are? Like, I have to decide who's writing the book to decide if it's what I want to read. But that's an aside. But any of the meals that I'm by, I like to speak. I, I just do. But any speech that I give has to begin with first of all recognizing, thanking the people that got together and made the meal. And then thanking family. And of course, thanking God. It's just one of the things that we do when we speak. So Thanksgiving is a, is a nice one day a year. But uh, maybe people should take away, at least from Thanksgiving, that it shouldn't just be a, a, a once a year once in a while. It should be something that's part and parcel of who you are and how you talk and what you do. It's a, it's a very beautiful thought. Um, another thing I saw once about thank you and stuff and the idea of being positive, I just saw very interesting. Um, and I didn't write it down. I don't remember his name. But there's a Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz who was on a video clip and he said that when he first got married, so it is an old story. This, this story is a good 35, 40 years old at least. He said there was a certain psychologist who said he could meet a couple and it wouldn't take him long to figure out will this couple stay married or will this couple get divorced? How do you know? He said it's a numbers game. He said if you can be positive five out of every six times, that was when you're going to either be positive, if we were to count up your positives and your negatives, and five out of six are positive, and one out of six are negative, you're good to go. But if you don't have that level of five to one, 
then that marriage is going to be shaky at best. It's a very interesting thought, and I saw it, and I thought it's beautiful, so I figured I would share it with you. But let's get back into this week's Torah portion. So the last show we talked about Jacob and his brother Esau. The truth is I have more stuff I wanted to talk about Jacob and his brother, but I decided I had other things prepared. Let's get into deeper into the Torah portion. What happens? So Jacob's entered the land of Israel. He's dealt with his brother Esau. Um, he's battled an angel. Uh, pretty soon, um, his wife Rachel will give birth to, his, to the 12th tribe, to his 12th son, and she will die. But we get to the, the tragic story of Dina, that is Leah's daughter. We don't know if the tribes were born with sisters. The Talmud says they were all born with twin sisters. Some say yes, some say no. There's only a few girls that are born that we actually know about. The rest, we don't know. They're not important enough for us to know their names. But Dina is the child of Leah. She's actually the same age as Joseph. And Dina, they move into this area called Shem. And Shem, by the way, is one of these places. It's not a good place for the Jewish people. Lots of bad stuff happens by this city. We're going to see Dina is raped. We're going to see Joseph is sold by the brothers in a couple weeks. The ten tribes split up from Judah and Benjamin and from the temple area. They make their own kingdom, right? It's called the Ten Tribes. And their home base, their headquarters, their capital city is Shechem. So Shechem throughout our history is not, it's called Nablus, by the way. Shechem is not one of our more favorite places to hang around because the problems happen. So what happens? So Dean is going out. Shechem, who is Shechem? There's a city called Shechem. Who is this person? So his father, his father's name is Hamar. For those who speak Hebrew, Hamar means donkey. So the king of this area, his name is donkey. I don't know what that says about what kind of king he was. Um, I'm sure there's other words we could use also, as I'm getting smirks, I think. Uh, we will not use those words. But in any case, that's the guy's name, right? That's the king's name. And his son, he names his son Shrem. And he names the city after his son. He obviously likes this prince. I'm sure he gives his son anything and everything he asks for. There's no question about that. So Shrem goes ahead. He kidnaps Dina. He rapes her. And then he decides he wants to make it kosher. So he doesn't send her home. He's still holding on to her. She's a prisoner in his house. And he and his father go to Jacob. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the conversation went, but I, you know, Jacob is not a fool. But basically, without saying the words, yeah, I saw your daughter, pretty girl, took her home, raped her. She's a prisoner by me. But, you know, now that I raped her, who exactly do you think your daughter's going to be able to marry? I am a catch. I am the prince of this whole area. I am wealthy. You couldn't do better. If you wanted to, so why don't you just give me your blessings and allow me to marry your daughter? That, I don't know if that was the exact tone of voice. I don't know if that's the exact words that were used, but clearly that was the point of Shechem and Hamar coming to Jacob, and Jacob doesn't say a word. He probably completely ignores them. 
In other words, yeah, I'm a stranger in your land. You are in control. I cannot force you to give me back my daughter. But if you think you're getting my blessing, you can forget about it. However, Jacob didn't say a word. I guess it was understood. However, Jacob has some children. Again, they're like 11 and 12. And we'll call them hotheads. And they don't always discuss with their father right and wrong. And they see their father is quiet. So they decide we have to rescue our sister. Now there's a problem. How exactly are, is an 11 and 12 year old supposed to attack a city, um, break in through the, you know, against all those soldiers and rescue their sister? This is a little bit of a problem. But they're smart Jewish boys. So they go to Shem out of their father's house. They catch up with him and they say, you know, we know you want to marry our sister. We know you want our blessing. We got to tell you the truth. We, the children of Jacob, right, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Abraham, we circumcise all our male boys. Everybody gets circumcised. There's just no way we could have any dealings, we could get involved, we could mix and join your community unless all the men get circumcised. Shrem thinks, now I don't even know why he thinks this way, but Shrem says, yeah, that's a great idea. You mean if I tell my whole city that they have to get circumcised, you guys will hang out with us? And Shimon Levi said, absolutely. So Shrem and his father go back, they call a community meeting, and they are king and prince, so it wasn't really much of a, um, it wasn't like all the town halls going around where, um, where everybody could just decide, you know, they say their opinion. There's really no opinion. It's Shrem's opinion, and I called you in to ask you what you think, and you have to answer that it's a good idea. So all the people get circumcised. Now, let's not fool ourselves, right? This is a surgery. And even on a baby, the Talmud tells us that day three is the most painful. That's the healing. If there's infections, if you're doing it to adults, um, there's going to be some recuperation time necessary. So Shimon and Levi watch them all get circumcised, wait till day three. Then they get their swords and they wipe out the city. So a boy in my class asks me, he says, their mother let them play with swords? So I said, now, I don't know nowadays if it's even true, but when I was little, so our mothers never let us play with knives. So, of course, every kid got himself a pocket knife. That was like the most normal thing. You had a Swiss Army pocket knife, and you had scissors and tweezers and long knives and fish-gutting stuff. Who know what, why a, a boy um, who's in third grade um, needs to have a knife that he could, you know, clean and scale a fish? I have no idea. But we all had one. It was the most normal thing even though our mothers didn't like us to play with knives. So I have a feeling that in those days it was the same. Of course, their mothers didn't want them to play with swords. So of course, all the kids had swords. So Shem and Levi go in and they wipe out the city. Then they kill Shem, they kill Hamar, and they go and they rescue their sister, and they pillage the city, and they come home, and Jacob is very unhappy. It's true, they rescued um, their sister, and Jacob had no way of saving his daughter, but he felt they did it the wrong way. The idea of wiping out a whole city um, displeased him, to say the least. And he said, what you did was wrong. And they answered back, you think our sister is going to be treated like a zaina, like a, like a prostitute? 
we can't allow such a thing. And that was really the end of the conversation, except that on Jacob's deathbed, he's going to lambast Shimon and Levi for wiping out the city of Shrem. He's going to curse their anger that they did this without permission, without asking him, because Jacob felt it was wrong. He couldn't explain it to them. They were not in a position to listen. They were not ready to listen. But when he's dying, that's when he gets the last word in. They're not going to answer their father back on his deathbed. And so therefore, Jacob shows his displeasure and uh, actually uses this, um, I guess called an attribute, this, this anger, this caring that Shimon and Levi have for the spirituality of the Jewish people. And it was they cared. They cared so much that they put their lives in danger to go wipe out a city, right? So they care so much. So, so Shimon becomes the teachers. Levi is the one that collects the tithes. That's how he gets supported. And that would allow this temperament, this attitude of Shimon and Levi, that if anybody touches the spirituality of the Jewish people, we will kill you over it. So I like joking class. I said, see, teachers have to care so much to not allow anything to get in the way of their students studying Torah. If somebody gets in the way, we kill them. So of course I'm dealing with third graders. No, no, you're not, you're not allowed to kill. That's pretty much the conversation we had. So I guess I, I had to tell my dad, okay, we're not going to really kill. Right now I had to kill. But just understand where we're coming from, how much we care that we would kill. No, 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 you're not allowed to kill. Okay, fine. And Levi, by the way, is the same. He's going to travel from farm to farm. And the far- and he's going to say, okay, I'm here for the tithes. It's called Meiser. Um, and the farmer is going to say, great, I have all these papers over here. I have all my questions. Could you answer all these questions? I don't know this law. I don't know that law. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. And the lady's job was to go ahead and go through all the questions. Now, there might be a lot of dumb questions there. And there might be a lot of questions that a regular person would say, you are an ignoramus. You did not go to school. What is wrong with you? You are wasting my time with ridiculous questions. Why don't you why don't you go to school and learn something? Instead, Levy has tremendous patience. What kind of person has patience if I care about you? If I care about your level of spirituality, then I have all the time in the world to answer your questions, no matter how silly you may think your question is. The fact that you're asking... I want you to be a better spiritual person. I have a lot of time in the world for you. And great rabbis, by the way, do it all the time. People come with questions that are silly because they're not educated. But these rabbis have all the patience in the world. Somebody asked me, oh yeah, now I have a good answer. I should have thought of the answer then. I didn't think of the answer. He asked me by, uh, it was last Shabbos in Chicago, so one of my son's um, brother-in-law's, he says, oh, so you're a, you're a teacher, you teach third grade, don't you get bored? Don't you like, like, what's like, you're teaching the same thing at such a simplistic level? And I told him, I don't get bored. So the question is, why don't I get bored? The truth of the matter is that I, I know this stuff in my sleep. Yeah, it's nice to say it, but why don't I get bored? The answer is because I care so much 
that I should be able to put this Torah knowledge into you, I have all the patience in the world because that I care for the future spirituality of these children. The fact that I care about this spirituality puts inside of me that I don't mind that it's simple, that 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 I could say this over in my sleep, that I've said it. I tell the boys in class, I said, you know, this verse, i probably gone over this verse over 200 times. This, this commentary, I probably said it 100 times because I care. That's what a teacher, probably any teacher, by the way, but that's what a teacher teaching children about Torah, the reason why he can keep doing it is because he cares. He wants that child to have that same spiritual Torah knowledge, so why wouldn't I have the patience to teach it to you? You hope, by the way, no different than when a parent does homework with a child. So I have to go over what my children are learning in school. So yes, sometimes I'll lose patience because I think they're playing around. But as long as they're trying, why lose patience? So, but we need to back up. The question that we, for the few minutes we have, that we really need to focus on in this story is, very good, Shimon and Levi care very much about the Jewish people. They love the Jewish people. They love Jewish spirituality. They cannot handle that anything should affect the level of spirituality in the Jewish people. But who gave them permission to kill over it? At the end of the day, in the seven Noahide laws, one of them is you can't kill. So no matter how much you care, and no matter how much it bothers you, you don't have permission to kill somebody. Why? Why did Shimon and Levi feel, where do they have the knowledge from that it was permissible for them to kill? Even Jacob doesn't seem to complain to his children. He should have said, murder, you're a bunch of murderers. How could you kill? He never refers to Shimon and Levi, even when he curses them later. He curses their anger. But he doesn't seem to have a problem with the fact that they killed a whole city. Why didn't Jacob have a problem? What is the story? What is behind the scenes? What is going on that Jacob is okay? And probably more than okay, because if he wasn't okay with it, if it wasn't permissible, then Jacob has to say, you're not allowed to murder. Why doesn't he say a word about it? So there happens to be that this is a very famous argument between Maimonides, known as the Rambam, he lived in Egypt, and Nachmanides, who most of his life lived in Spain. Both of them were in Israel. The Ramban finished his life, Nachmanides finished his life there, Maimonides did not. Both very famous rabbis, we've talked about Maimonides, everybody knows Nachmanides, we've talked about a lot. He wrote the second most famous commentary on the Torah after Rashi. So it says like this. The Rambam, Maimonides, says that the reason that the town, the city, deserved a death penalty is because they were not enforcing the Noahide laws. Meaning, there are seven Noahide laws and all of them come with a death penalty. Murder, adultery, um, um, idol worship, right? There's a whole list of them. And one of them is to set up judges. What does that mean to set up judges? So there's a, another commentary that explains. His name is a Saferno. 
He says if you don't have judges or if you have judges and they don't go ahead and enforce the laws, it creates a lawless society, which I'm sure if I wanted to, I could wax poetic on my soapbox, but I shall not, at least not yet. Uh, but if the judges will not enforce the laws, then you have a lawless society. You have no society. So, for example, in a lawless society, you, um, wh- who is Shrem picking on over here? Now, Shrem decided to go rape somebody. Yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of girls in the neighborhood. Why did he pick Jacob's daughter? Perhaps she was very pretty. I mean, it's certainly possible. Or perhaps Jacob is a foreigner. No one's here to protect him. Nobody cares about him. He, he, he came from another country. He, he has no friends. He has no one that will protect him. So he's the perfect target. If I go after this foreigner, who really cares? Right? So that's part of a lawless society that somebody can get away with starting up with a foreigner. Even if you look at how the brothers talk, when I explain the story, go back. Let's think about the story a little bit. The brothers say to Shrem, you'll all get circumcised. We'll all be one. We'll all be together. And it was even the brothers picked up on the problem over here. The reason why Shrem is able to get away with it is because you guys are not one of us. You're not one of us. It's a, there's a double standard. You protect people that are like you. You don't protect people that are different than you. And again, I don't want to get too involved in this, but really, if we think about it, I, you know, that's what's going on. I mean, it's been going on forever. But that, to a certain extent, is what's going on. When there are communities that revolt, it's for the most part, I'm not saying they have to go kill people, right? But for the most part, that's what's happening. There's a double standard. You're not treating me the same. And that's what we want our court systems to do. We want our court systems to treat everybody, be colorblind, treat everybody exactly the same. You're wealthy, you're poor, you're black, you're white, you're from Mexico, you're from Canada. Who cares? If there's a law, if you, if you don't keep the law, this is the punishment for not keeping the law. End of story. It's not all supposed to be political that every time something happens, um, well, it depends what you look like. It depends, you know, what your background is. That's ridiculous. And that's why Shimon and Levy felt that the city had to be wiped out. Because, because if you don't care about the foreigners, so you don't care about laws, so your society is going to collapse. Some may say that's what's happening here. That is how Maimonides understands why the brothers felt the, the need, and Jacob agreed, they should be wiped out. Jacob's problem is that it's just bad timing. Like, it, they may deserve to get wiped out, but then the world's going to come and attack us, and we are not big enough to protect ourselves right now. Nachmanides said, interesting enough, the kidnapping of Dina, the not following the judges, that itself is not considered a capital offense. Must be, Nachmanides says, that these people were so low, had committed so many crimes, idol worship and the like, that, uh, that 
that they're guilty anyways. As this is just an excuse. These are all rotten people. We will use the taking of our sister as an excuse to go ahead and wipe everybody out. It's very problematic because, so now what? So now you have to start thinking, and we only have time to think, right? What's the difference between the tyrant who, uh, who goes ahead and says these people have to be wiped out or just because I think uh, that this is good for me and I don't have time to get to the answer. Maybe another day. The music's already playing. I hope you like this short and sleet. Thank you, of course, for Mother Sons and, and, and listeners. I can't do without you. And this may be the last time that I say thank the Mother Production team behind the table, David and Andy, because next time will be, I hope, in the new studio. So until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah and our Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it.